0: Well, today, we're going to spend some time walking through the book of Revelation. We're going to start this series. It is going to be 13 weeks. I think this is the longest sermon series that we've ever done here, that I've ever done here. And, uh, but, but honestly, 13 weeks, I'm not even sure actually is enough time because of all the great truths that are found within this book it is a a book that is full of symbolism it's a book that is full of images and full of pictures that uh, if you've ever had the opportunity of reading revelation it's easy to get confused it's easy to get lost and let's be honest it's easy to get bored so i want to ask a question like in full disclosure and i want you to be honest you're in church how many of you have ever sat down and read through some of the book of Revelation, some of the chapters, and you sit there and you think like, what in the world did I just read? Go ahead and raise your hand. Right, I think all of us have gotten to that point. And you'll notice my hand is up too because I'm the preacher. I'm not going to lie in church. And so I recognize that there's lots of things here that can be confusing, lots of elements and lots of truths here that can leave you like wondering, like, what does that say? But I want you to recognize and understand, and I think today will give us a little bit of picture, a little bit of a glimpse of this truth. It's like, hey, there's some incredible things in this book, and it's not that hard to understand when you simply take the time to dig into what it says. And so that's what we're going to be doing over these next 13 weeks. And, And so while it can be a little bit perplexing, I want to start with what Danny Akin said. Danny said this, it does not, the book of Revelation, it does not constitute an unsolvable puzzle. But it contains a definite promise and a magnificent portrait of the coming again of the Lord Jesus. And that really, in summary, is what this book is all about. And so if you want to know about the coming promise, and if you want to know about the magnificent victory and the hope and the future that we have in Christ Jesus and His coming again, then hey, let's pay attention and let's dig in. Now we have a book that we prepared. That is going to be a study guide uh, that we were hoping to have today. Unfortunately, it's not going to be done printing until um, June the 9th, which is this week. And so, it'll be here next Sunday. And so, we've got a a book that will be a study guide for the entire summer that we're going to have next Sunday. Uh, When you come in, we're going to have one for everybody. Make sure we get all of that to you. So, make sure you come back next week. Now, the notes of what I'm going to be doing today, in this notebook, all the notes are going to be, you you know, there's places there for you to take notes in the notebook that we give out next week. But for what we talk about today, the notes are going to be found online, uh, on our online app, the TRBC app, or you can find them on our website, so you can download those, and next week you can make sure you go back and, and transcribe them back into, um, into the notebook so you can have it all together in one place, and so we apologize if we didn't get it here on time, uh, but it'll be here next week. So let's dig in, let's kind of begin talking about why is it important to understand what the future holds. And I think, honestly, the reason it's important to understand what the future holds is that we're at a time and a place in today's culture and today's world where it seems like the future is closer than we ever thought it was. It seems like we're marching into the end times. We're marching into that place in, uh, in our future, in, in our lives, where we like, wonder like, seriously of all the things that we read about, and hear about, and talk about, and, and all the news, and all the, the bad things that are happening around the world, Like clearly we have to be walking towards the end times. In fact, when you go into Scripture looking like 2 Timothy chapter 3. You don't need to turn there, but we read about what the end days are going to look like. And so the last days, 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says this, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. We could stop right there and we could all agree that we're in the last days, right? Hard times are going to come in the last days. It says this, for people will be lovers of self, and I think today we certainly can see that people are very inwardly focused. It's all about me. It's all about what's in it for me. What can I get out of this? It says that they'll be lovers of money. It says that they'll be boastful and they'll be proud. They'll be demeaning and disobedient to parents. Parents are like, yes, I, it's in days. I get it. Uh, ungrateful. They will be unholy. They'll be unloving, they'll be irreconcilable, they'll be slanderers, without self-control, they'll be brutal, without love for what is good, they'll be traitors and reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now when you walk through all of those statements, doesn't that sound like very clearly to what we see in today's culture and today's world? Like, doesn't that sound like exactly what we're facing? I'm going to move this before I trip on it, because that would not be, that would be the end times for me, so we're not going to do that. But clearly, don't you think like that is where we are in our culture today? People are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Does that sound familiar? That people are lovers of money, materialism that seems to be so rampant, right? That people will be slanderers, man, we can see it all the time. I mean, we saw just in the last week, this uh, couple, last couple of weeks, the story of of what was taking place with with Target, and that Target was actually hired on and then connected with a group that uh, are Satanists, and they're putting out materials and talking about how Satan is like good, and uh, like people, we're walking into the end days. We're walking into the end times, and I, I don't know like what the day's gonna be, but like clearly when you read this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul makes it very clear, like we are that close. And so if that's true, like we need to understand what then does God have in store for each and every one of us. We read in scriptures and from another prophet, the prophet Daniel back in the Old Testament about what the last days are going to look like. In Daniel chapter 9 verse 26, and it says, until the end there will be war. Did you know that today there are approximately 30 different wars that are going on? And studies will tell us that over the last 6,000 years of recorded history, that there's only been about 200 years in that entire 6,000 years where wars were not rampant everywhere, but they're continuing to escalate. 175,000 people last year died as a result of war in this world. And we think World War II was the last great, last big war. It's still going on. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. In other words, what we see, Jesus made it clear, like, hey, in the last days, yes, Paul, all the things that Paul wrote about are true, but also you're going to see wars. You're going to see like, like all the desolation that's taking place all around the world. We read about in Revelation chapter 9, we're gonna to get to that in a few weeks where it talks about how that uh, there's gonna be 200 million horsemen that were gonna walk into the, uh, the valley of Armageddon for battle. And you think about that 200 million horsemen, that's a lot of, that's a big, uh, a big army, isn't it? 200 million horsemen. And so you think about that statement, did you recognize that, that actually that wasn't even possible until recently? In fact, studies will tell us that it took 1,803 years from the year 0 AD, it took 1,803 years to get to 1 billion people. And then it took 123 years after that to 1926 before we got to 2 billion. And then it was 33 years later that we got to 3 billion. And then it was 22 years later that we got to 4 billion. And now, about every 10 to 11 years, we add a billion, and we're now over 8 billion with going towards 2030, estimating somewhere around 2035 or so that we'll be up around 9 billion and then 10 billion. And so, up until 1803, it probably would have been impossible to have 200 million horsemen in that region in the the Middle East for them to actually be able to show up for battle. And yet here we are now, and like the overpopulation has grown like crazy. But also we read in the passages, again, go back to Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12, the prophet said this, but you, Daniel, keep these words secret, talking about the prophecy, and we're going to get to his prophecies a little bit later in this series, and seal the book until the time is, uh, until the time of the end. And listen to what it says, many will roam about, in other words, a population explosion that we're seeing right now. But then listen to this. And knowledge will increase. Knowledge will increase. You know, I read this week that um, Buckminster Fuller, he wrote an article, uh, wrote a book talking about the knowledge doubling curve, and listen to these statistics. He wrote this back, by the way, in 1982. He suggested that in 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every 100 years. By the end of 1945, the rate of knowledge doubling had come down to every 25 years. And by 1982, every 13 months, knowledge doubled. In 2020, it is estimated that knowledge doubles every 12 hours. And now here we are today where artificial intelligence is now all the rage and all the conversations and all the discussion, and who knows how often knowledge will double. Now, what that means is this, is that right now it's 10.01, and so 12 hours ago, it was 10.01 p.m. on Saturday night, and do you know that all, there, all the knowledge that there is in existence today, that right now at this moment at 10.01 a.m. on June the 4th of 2023, that there is exactly double the amount of information and knowledge that was available at 10 o'clock last night, there's now double at 10 o'clock this morning. So you go back to the prophecy of Daniel that was written about 600 years before Christ, and we see very clearly a statement here that like knowledge will increase. Knowledge is increasing. And so you can see like when you put all these puzzles together, when you kind of take all these threads and all these different things and kind of, you know, weave them into like one little tapestry here, you can see like we're clearly marching towards the end days. You talk about the departure of the Christian faith. We saw just in the last couple of weeks studies that came out that talked about now for the first time in, uh, in recorded history of, uh, you know, going back to like 19 or 1805 or something like that. I can't remember the exact statistic, but, uh, but there's a, a rapid decline in people who, who are attending church every week. That just in the last twenty years, the people who are part of a local body of believers and gather together every week for church—that number is like is is rapidly declining. We get departure of Christian faith. That that's going to happen in the end days. We read about it in Second Timothy chapter three a moment ago. Attack on marriage, we talked about that a few weeks ago, the Oberfeld decision just a, a few years ago, and, and the constant attack on marriage where now, you know, now that gay marriage has been allowed, now they're actually trying to, to, to bring it down the pike and, and get laws to be passed where, where more than two people could be involved in a marriage, where you could have three or four or five or whatever that might be. The slippery slope has begun and we're sliding towards whatever uh, Satan has in store for us in the days to come. So obviously we're getting close to these end times. Scriptures talk about the unity of world systems where uh, the world currencies and the world operate, like never before have we been more connected than we are today because of the internet, right? And so you see all these pictures, all these stories, and we recognize like, hey, we're getting close. A Pew Research study was done just a, a few months ago, back in December. And it talked about how that the people today are very clearly connected to the fact that we're in the end days. It says that in churches today, in, in Christian churches, Protestant churches like we are in today, that among black Protestant churches, 76% of black churches believe that we're in the end days. 63% of evangelical Protestant churches believe that we're in the end days. Like we are clearly in a place where we all kind of agree and understand we are close. Now, I've got to be honest. I have no idea, even when you read these passages and you look at all the statistics and all the stories, like I have no idea when that's going to be. I know this, we can go all the way back to Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, and we can see that people have been predicting and expecting the end of days, going all the way back. In fact, when Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, if you read that passage right after Jesus disappeared, it says the disciples were still sitting there looking up into heaven, waiting for His imminent return. So going all the way back to the moment that Jesus left, people had been waiting. People have predicted, I told you the story before. Back in the early 1970s, Jack Van Empie, a well known uh, preacher back in those days, predicted that Jesus was going to return. I think it was 1973, I think it was, uh, that he was going to return on September the 5th of that year. And I was ticked off because my birthday was September 7th and there was a new Evil Knievel toy coming out that I wanted. I, I mean, the predictions have been around for a long, long time. I get it. But here's what I know because we don't know, we better be ready. Because we're not sure, we better expect the fact that while it might be a hundred years from now, it also could be this afternoon. And so in recognition of that truth, that's why this book, this Revelation is so very important. So over these next 13 weeks, we're going to walk through and look at what does the book of Revelation, what does the book of Daniel, what does it look like, what does it say about what the end times are going to look like, and what has God promised to His Son Jesus Christ. Now, in full disclosure, Lots of what we're going to be talking about. In fact, we're going to end the series in August. We're going to end the series with a, a timeline of the end days, of the last days, and we're going to have it all across the the wall in the back here. We're going to walk through, and we're going to look at it from the perspective of, of what the traditions that our church has always kind of leaned into and believed, of, of a pre-trib uh, rapture and a, and, and a pre-millennial return of Christ. And we're going to look at it from that conservative, from that, that background, and I recognize there may be some people here that differ and disagree with their certain little points here but what we all agree on is this, Jesus is coming again, and that Jesus is the only hope that we have. And so recognizing that, let's spend some time walking through the book of Revelation. We're going to start today in Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to look just really at the first eight verses today. And so Revelation chapter 1, I asked you to turn there a few moments ago, let's read this together. It says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants things which must shortly take place." John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold. He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so let's look at, in this first introductory statement that we find in Revelation chapter one, let's kind of get an understanding of what this book really is. What is the purpose behind it? What is it that God wanted us to get from it? And so obviously, when you kind of look at this from a deductive standpoint of like understanding like the, you know, exactly what it all is, uh, there's some questions that we need to ask ourselves. And the first questions we ask is this, is the who, when, and where? I mean, any journalist will tell you that when they're writing a story, when they're putting together a story that's going to go in the newspaper or on television news, like they want to get like the who, the when, and the where. I saw a story this last week that a local news agency put out, actually it was two weeks ago, and it was a big announcement. The headline says, local Chick-fil-A announces the opening date. And you all know there's a new Chick-fil-A out on Timberlake Road. It's right next to the McDonald's out there. I see it often. I've watched it being built every single day for the last, you know, numbers of months. And so the big headline was, you know, new Chick-fil-A sets opening date. And I wanted to find out when the opening date of Chick-fil-A was on Timberlake Road. So I opened up the article and I read the article. And as I read the entire article, got all the way down to the end of the article, whoever wrote that article, and if you're here today and you wrote that article and you're part of our church, forgive me. But throughout the whole article, guess what they never told me? The opening date. They said, yes, they've decided they're going to open soon. I knew that when they started building the building. (laughs) I did not need to know that they're going to open soon. I wanted to know what was the date, right? And so obviously, the who, the when, the where, it's important things and truths that we need to understand. So, we look at this passage, and we talk about the who. And the first thing that we see, who, is this book of Revelation. It is Jesus' revelation. Look in the first verse that we just read a moment ago. It says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show His servants. In other words, what that tells us right up front that this book was not written by some 90-year-old guy in isolation sitting on a mountainside somewhere out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, that it's not just his thoughts, that this book literally is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it says right there in the opening statement, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which came to Him through God the Father. In other words, like screaming in all caps, basically saying this, this is what I want you to know. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm reading something and it starts with the statement that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, I want to know what it has to say. I want to know what Jesus wants to give me, I want to know what the truth is that's found in this book. And that's exactly what we read here, and what we read through this entire book is the victory that comes through Jesus Christ, the promise, and the hope, and our future that God has promised through His Son Jesus, like, hey, don't you want to know what our future is? And don't you want to know more than just simply, oh yes, heaven is in store for all of us? Like, don't you want to know what heaven's like? And don't you want to know how God delivers us us from the attacks of Satan in the middle and then walks us through and allows us to experience all the great hope that comes from Like, that's what this book is. Oswald Chambers said it this way, the death of Jesus was not the death of a martyr. It was the revelation of the eternal heart of God. You know what the eternal heart of God is? The eternal heart of God is that He wants to spend eternity with you. That He wants to spend eternity with you in a place that is perfect. That He wants to spend eternity with you in a place that there is no more sorrow and there's no more pain and there's no more tears and there's no more death. Like that's what God has in store for you. That is the heart of God, and this book is a picture of what that heart of God is all about. And so that's what we see here. The very statement we read a moment ago, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is the Greek word apokalypsis, which we get the English word apocalypse. Now, when you hear the word apocalypse, like, what's the first thing that you think of, right? It's like chaos, right? Destruction. Look at the movies that Hollywood has put out. Anytime the word apocalypse is connected to a movie or to some level of entertainment, there's like, things are going to blow up, right? I mean, the world is going to come to an end. Apocalypse, man, it's going to be awful. It's going to be horrific, right? That's what we, we look at it as a word that describes chaos, but that's not at all what the word revelation, the Greek word apocalypsis, really is. The word apocalypsis literally is just simply this, a revealing, an unveiling, the telling of a story. And so we understand that while we've created it to be this idea of chaos, it's not chaos at all. It's just the unveiling of the story of God. It's the revealing of the heart of God. It's the revealing of what God has in store for us. And so the who is, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and He delivered it to His choice servant, His beloved servant. He delivered it to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. If you think about the whole story of the disciples, that John was always called the one who Jesus loved. In Matthew chapter 4, he was the one that was chosen and called to follow alongside of Jesus. He probably was there in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus was baptized, as he probably followed John the Baptist before Jesus. We see in scriptures in the Mark chapter 3 that Jesus named him and his brother James the sons of thunder. We see in the Scriptures, in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 17, that John was one of the two who was allowed to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration and to actually see and hear Moses and Elijah in the voice of God. We read in the, the New Testament in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 26, that John was allowed to go a little farther with Jesus in the garden to pray, along with two other disciples, chosen out from the twelve as a special group. We read in the Scriptures... That when Jesus was hanging on the cross, when he was dying, that he looked at John and he said, behold your mother. In other words, take care of my mom. Make sure you take care of her because she's your mom now. In Galatians chapter 2, John is referred to as the pillar of the church. That he was the one that was referred to there in Galatians chapter 2 is one of the, one of the stalwart leaders in, of the faith and the leaders of the church. And so it makes a lot of sense that, that Jesus chose John to reveal this story to it also makes sense because he's the only one still living. He was the last man standing, all the other disciples had been martyred, all the other disciples were gone, and here we are now, much, much year later, and John's up in his 90s and he's sitting there, he's the only one still alive, and so it makes sense. This is the guy that Jesus chose to reveal the story and to write it down for all of mankind. And so this revelation, it says in the last part of verse 1, And He sent and He signified it by His angel to His servant John. He chose him. This is the story that you are going to tell. This is the story that, that we have for you, that we want you to write down and record for all of human history to understand. John even calls himself a slave. He calls himself the Greek word doulos, and, and he recognizes even now up in his 90s that he is nothing more than a servant of Jesus Christ, and has been from the day he first laid eyes on Him. And so the who? Very clearly, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's delivered to John. So the where? The where? Simple. It tells us right here in in verse 9, that it was written around 95 AD, the when and the where? From the island of Patmos. It says, John, both your brother and companion to the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so John makes it clear, verse 9, like, hey, I wrote this and I wrote this because God gave it to me, and I wrote this while I was actually in exile on Patmos, which is a small little Greek island right the, uh, off the shore in the coast of, of, uh, of Turkey where Ephesus was, and he probably served as a leader in the church of Ephesus when he was exiled. And he was exiled and sent there, locked up away, you know, he just kind of set on a mountainside, Because he was faithful to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, why did God choose choose John to write this story? Because he was someone who was faithful in sharing the message of truth. And the book of Revelation is nothing more than a continual sharing of that truth. And so while the who and the when and the where is important, it's not nearly as important as the what and the why. As the what and the why, the what and the why are really what's important. So what is the what and the why? So that we might know and so that we might go. Look what it says in verse 2, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. That statement says, so he bore witness to the testimony. In other words, that's the picture, that's the statement, really, that verse 2, you want to underline it in your Bible, that is what God wants from each and every one of us. That is what God wants and desires out of our own lives, that we bear witness to the Word of God and that we're a testimony of Jesus Christ to everything that we've seen and everything that we've heard. John is given here as a description of a faithful witness of what Jesus shared to him in this revelation. In fact, we read in different books, Kendall easily said it this way, John uses the language of a legal witness called to appear in a courtroom. And his role is simply one who reliably testifies to everything that he's seen and everything that he's heard so that we can understand that it's his way of affirming that this book, this statement, this revelation is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That that is the what, so that we might know what God's plan is, so that we might go. And that we might go has a twofold, a two-pronged approach to it. The first, so that we might go, so that we have the opportunity of accepting and believing that Jesus Christ is God's Son, that He died and that He rose again so that we can spend eternity in heaven, but also so that we might go and tell others that message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that we might know and that we might go. Look what it says in verse 3. This is important for us to understand. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. For the time is near. You saw me a moment ago when I read verse 1, the things that are shortly to take place, and now here in this verse, in verse 3, and the time is near. Now that word blessed is used there. It's a Greek word makarios, which is the idea literally of how fortunate And so what this passage is saying, what Jesus is revealing to us is how fortunate is the one who reads this prophecy and who hears this prophecy and then keeps this prophecy and goes and shares this prophecy. How fortunate is that person? Wouldn't it be cool if each and every one of us could have the declaration in our lives and understanding in our lives of how fortunate we are because we are walking in the plan that God has for us? That we're blessed because we're doing exactly what God has called us to do? Like, that is like when we're knocking it out of the park, because I've said it before here, like when you're walking in the will of God, fully in the will of God, it's the only place that you cannot fail. That's the declaration of that truth. Blessed, how fortunate is the one who reads and who hears these words and keeps these things which are written in it. Why? Because the time is near. We don't have much time left, which brings us to the time is short. Verse 3 tells us time is short. Look what it says again, back in verse 1, middle part of the verse, which is, you know, the time is, is things which must shortly take place. Now again, we said it a moment ago, we have no idea when this is going to take place. But hey, we have to act like it is now. Why? Why? Well, because He's our only hope. Because Jesus is the only hope that we have. If you put your hope in government, you're always going to be disappointed. We've learned that. And I'm telling you, whether it's Republican or whether it's Democrat, I know there's some Republicans sitting in this room that are saying, I can't believe he put down Republicans." I'm putting down Republicans, and I'm putting down Democrats. And I'm putting down independence, and I'm putting down any human who's ever served in any office, in any place, dog catcher all the way to president, Supreme Court justice, it does not matter. If you put your eternal hope in a person, no matter how good they are, and no matter whether you agree completely with them and how they vote or not, I don't care if you put your hope in them, you are going to be disappointed because they are not your hope. Our hope is not who wins the next election, our hope is the one who's already gained the victory through Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is found. That's what we must walk in. And so this passage is like hey, the time is near. This must shortly take place. He is our only hope. Verse 8 says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, said the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, not an Almighty, not a God. He is the God, the one and only God. He's the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. He's the ending, Revelation chapter 22, no matter what you look at in all of humanity, history, from the going all the way back to all the way forward to the very end, here's what I want you to know. He is always God, period. And we, in our journey, in our lives, in our walk, we must recognize that that's who God is, and so if that's who God is, then we have to recognize He's the only hope we've got. He's the only hope we have four times in this first chapter of Revelation chapter 1. It very clearly says He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. He was, he is, he is to come. Mark Schultz had a great song that said the thing. He is, he was, and he always will be. I love that song. Very clearly, he's the only hope we have. So here we are. So we've talked about the who, the when, the where. We've talked about the what and the why. So here's one more question. So what now? So what now? So what do we do? Here's what we do. Listen to me. And by the way, full disclosure, for those in the room, those watching, this is only for people who believe that Jesus is God's Son, that He died and that He rose again. So so this statement I'm about to make is a very exclusive statement because it's only for a select group of people in the world today who believe that Jesus is God's Son, that He died and that He rose again. Okay, so what do we do? What now? Rejoice because Jesus wins. Rejoice because Jesus wins. Now, why did I make that an exclusive message? Because if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, victory is not in your future. If you don't believe that Jesus is God's Son, that He died and He rose again for you and you've given your life to Him and trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, if you've not done that, then every statement of victory and every statement of hope and every promise that's given, not only in Revelation, but in every book all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, here's what, every promise, it's not for you, well, except for one that there's a real place called hell that you will spend a very real eternity. But for those of us who believe in Jesus, rejoice, Jesus wins. Verse 4, John to the seven churches, and by the way, and we're going to talk about the seven churches next week from Revelation chapter 2 and 3, but understand the seven churches are not specific. It's not like talking about seven different churches that existed, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago there in Turkey. It's not just those churches, okay? It's not. These churches represent every church that has existed from Acts chapter 1 all the way through to today. And so, when we walk through those seven churches next week, recognize that they're a picture of, a glimpse of, a a kind of a statement about every church that has ever existed. And so, John, to the seven churches, which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with clouds." And every eye will see Him, and even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, amen. We recognize here, this statement is, hey, this is who Jesus is. Verse 5 talks about Jesus as the the priest and the prophet and the king, when it talks about Him being the faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. It talks about how the fact that He is the faithful witness of God's promise, that He is the firstborn from the dead, which means He is preeminent over every person who has ever lived. And that He's the ruler over all the kings of the earth. In fact, you go back into the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel, Prophet Daniel talked about that Jesus. And by the way, there's a balloon from graduation about to hit somebody in the head right there. Okay, it's down on the ground. There we go. Perfect. Okay, and so it says this in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. He changes the times and the season. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have, have understanding. Here's what I want you to know. Really cool. That every king, every president, every leader who has ever ruled, whoever reigned, whoever will, understand this. They are all in subservience to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So don't get discouraged when you have a president or a king or a leader, a governor, a mayor who's not doing what you want them to do, who might be voting the wrong way, who might be making all the mistakes that you could ever possibly make and doing them in a very short period of time. I'm not talking about anyone specific here, but don't get discouraged when that's taking place because even that person who is doing everything wrong, Jesus rules over him. Jesus is king. And so Daniel talked about that in Daniel chapter 2. We also see in this passage that I just read, it says He's coming with clouds. That's not a picture of, that's not a statement of that when Jesus comes in the rapture. That's not talking about that. The rapture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. What this is talking about is the second coming of Jesus Christ. At the end of the tribulation period, when Jesus comes back and says, enough is enough, and defeats the Antichrist and Satan for all of time. That's who Jesus is. Verse 7, further references that all are going to see Him, even those who disagreed with Him, even those who killed Him, everyone who has blasphemed the name of Jesus, that is the point when one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you're sitting here today and you don't believe in Jesus, let me give you a quick word of understanding and knowledge. One day you will understand who He is. And I pray that you understand before this day. So this passage clearly tells us, verse 8 again, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Nothing ever was and nothing ever will be without me being in authority and me being king. Is that good news? Rejoice, Jesus wins. Warren Wiersbe stated, he, he talked about Daniel. He said, when Daniel finished writing his prophecy, he was instructed to shut up the words and seal the book. Daniel chapter 12 says that. Like, hide it away, write it, but keep it quiet. But when John was given the instruction, Jesus said to him, seal not the saints in the prophecies of this book. Why? Since Calvary, the resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, God has ushered in the last days, and is fulfilling His hidden purposes in this world, the time is at hand. And so people today, when we start this journey of walking through the book of Revelation, a book that maybe at times can seem perplexing, that maybe at times can seem confusing, I want you to know right up front, I want you to hear me, it is not confusing, it is not perplexing, it is not difficult to understand when you truly understand exactly what the picture is and the narrative that Jesus gives in His Revelation. And so understanding that that the time is at hand what we must recognize and understand is that we need to hitch our wagons to the right horse. That we need to make sure that we are connected to the one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I love this quote that I found this week that Peter Marshall said. He said it is better to fall uh, I'm sorry it is better to fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than it is to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. We live in a world today where so many people are running towards a system and a belief and doctrines that ultimately will fail. And even in the moment, they think they might be succeeding. And even in the moment, they think they might be thriving. And even in the moment, they think things might be great. Even in the moment, they think, hey, we have got it together, and we know what's right. Peter Marshall said, it's always much better to fail now To be connected to something that will ultimately succeed rather than to succeed now and be connected to something that will ultimately fail. In Palo Alto, California, there's a university called Stanford University, one of the premier institutions in higher learning in our country today. It's very well respected and well known. You go back to 1896, the two people, the husband and wife, who, who kind of were the, the benefactors of that institution. They started this institution, and they had this vision of building this beautiful campus. And, and what they wanted to build is right in the middle of it, they wanted to build this huge monument, this big arch that w- was a, a symbol of, of the power and the prestige of this place. And so they began in 1899 to build this structure. And we've got a picture of this structure from 1899. Oh, there it is, back here. And so they built this structure. It's 100 feet tall. It's 90 feet wide, 34 feet deep. Right at the top, the words and the frieze there were, they were etched into that stone were just simply the statement of, of the progress of the world, the progress of civilization. And they built this to be a, a standing point, a, a monument to everyone who would ever walk through that arch into Stanford University, that this is a place where you will learn everything that you need. And so they built this in 1899. In 1906, there was a great earthquake that hit San Francisco and the Bay Area, a destructive earthquake that that destroyed so much. And that big, huge monument that was built that spent, they spent millions of dollars to build in today's dollars. In 1906, it looked a little bit like this. And the reason it looked like this was because once it came down in the middle of the earthquake, the people found out that the contractors who built that monument, that they took some, some cheap shots, they, they, they cut some corners, they, they didn't use the right materials, and, and so the foundations of this monument that was to stand for all of time, that they actually, inside of it, that they actually used like rubbish, trash, and, and, and different types of rocks and soils that were not really foundation, and they used that inside as the foundation for the structure. So at the minute that the earthquake came, that thing came down instantly. They ended up in recognizing that because of the lack of construction of that monument, the, the lack of, of, of quality in the construction, they ended up taking the whole thing down, and today that monument doesn't exist. Now, I show you those pictures to basically underscore what Peter Marshall said. There are lots of people that today are walking through their lives, and go back to the first picture. picture, they're walking through their lives thinking that this is a picture of their life. That they are standing tall because they're walking in the culture's idea of what is right. That they're walking tall because they feel like they've got everything under control, that they know what to do and they know what, uh, what direction they're going. But ultimately, because they base their lives not on truth, but on fallacy. Because they've not based their lives on the truth of God's word, they base their lives on the lives of Satan. That one day, it's gonna look like that. It is better to connect your life to something that will ultimately succeed, even if we go through difficult times today, which, let's be honest, we are, than it is to try to fit into the world and succeed in the world's eyes if we are connected to something that will ultimately fail. The book of Revelation is a picture of victory that comes through Jesus Christ, As we walk through this passage, we're going to learn that like in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, we see that He is our exalted priest. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we're going to see Jesus as the Lamb of God. In Revelation chapter 6 through 18, we're going to see that He is the judge over all the world. In Revelation chapter 19, we're going to see that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Revelation 20 through 22, we're going to see that He is the one, the bridegroom, that is ushering the bride into the promise and the hope of heaven for all of eternity. The thread that goes all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22 is that Jesus is the only hope we have, and we... Had better make sure that we are connected to the King of Kings, making sure that we connect our lives to one that will ultimately succeed because the victory has already been won, rather than to walk our lives down a path that leads to destruction. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow the way that leads to life. This book is a picture of what the narrow way looks like and why you would never want to do anything But walk the narrow road that leads to Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You that You give us a declaration, a picture, that Your Word is truth. That Your Word has promise. That you have a future in store for each and every one of us that goes beyond our wildest imagination. Ephesians chapter 3, 20, that it is exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask or think or want or desire or even understand. God, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you've promised. And I pray that today every person who hears my voice is a person whom already has decided I will follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Him. And God, if there's somebody here that has not done that, I pray that right now they'll recognize and understand that the only hope they have is found in Christ and Christ alone. Help them to make that decision. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, in a moment our service is gonna conclude. And as we do every week here, we've been doing this going all the way back to 1956, and I promise you this. We're gonna do this until Jesus returns. We're gonna do this every Sunday. I know we live in a world today where a lot of churches don't give invitations anymore. And I'm just making a declaration to you, as long as I'm alive, as long as I've got anything to do with it, this church will never be one of those churches. This church will always give the opportunity for people to make a decision to follow Christ. Because if we did not do that, then all we would be is a purveyor of information, not a place of hope and a place of truth. And so in a moment, we're going to end our service. And all around the front of this room are individuals, men and women who would love to talk with you about your walk with Christ, who would love to share with you who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and help you today if you've never done so, to make the decision, the declaration that I've decided to follow Jesus. And so in a moment, we're going to stand. I'm going to conclude our service in prayer. And again, all across this front, the people are here. And I encourage you that after that prayer, that if you're here today and you want to meet Christ, I I invite you, I urge you to come to this altar and say, hey, I want to meet Jesus. The very first verse of this book, these things will shortly take place. Verse three, the time is near at hand. We don't have much time left. I firmly believe that. It might be today. Do not allow yourself to be caught with the decision, I will trust Christ tomorrow when today might be the day that you stand before Him. Father, I pray today for every person here. I pray that they will be people who believe and know and trust that Jesus is your son, that he died and that he rose again. I pray that in this moment, the cry of their heart would simply be this. God, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I believe Jesus is that savior. I believe he's your son. I believe he died and rose again. So forgive me of my sins. Save me today through your son Jesus and help me to live for you until the day I see you thank you God for saving me God I pray right now every person in this room will have made that declaration and if someone just prayed that prayer in this moment I pray that in a moment you bring them to this altar and allow them to have an opportunity of praying with and talking with someone here about who you are and what you've done And God will give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The altar's open. If you want to come down and meet Jesus and talk about who he is and what he's done, if you want to come down and and to pray, if you want to come down and talk about something else, our team is here. If you want to find out more about our church, you can go out to our Connection Center out in the lobby and do that. But remember this, walk out of here in this room today and if you forget everything else that I've said, well, number one, go look it up again. But number two, rejoice. Jesus wins. God bless you and have a great day. I want to thank you for joining with us today. If you've never come to the place of recognition in your life of being a sinner and needing a Savior, you can do so right now. Believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give you eternal life. Just ask him to save you today you would like to talk further about what it is that God has done for you in the giving of His Son, Jesus. We would love to chat with you about that. I would encourage you to email us at the address that is on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. We would love to connect with you to help you begin a brand new journey with Jesus Christ in your life. And if you would like to help to contribute to our ministry as we take this message of the gospel around the world, go to the link on the screen today and help us help others with the amazing message of God's love, to let them know that God loves them, that Christ died for them, that he rose again. And through Christ, we have hope.